Um, Titus, let me, let me pray myself before getting into this, one of my favorite books of the Bible, and uh, see what the Lord's got for us today. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for, um, thank you for the, the work that you've called us to do. Work, Lord God, that is not for um, the building up of our own names, for our own glory, but for your glory and for the service and strength of others. And uh, God, as we look at this uh, wonderful little book of Titus, it's our prayer that um, you would open up uh, new areas that it teaches uh, and, and help us to explore and understand what it's calling us to, especially in regard to our work, which we're going to see spans everything that, that you've given us to do. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, my words today would reflect um, the accuracy and the beauty and the strength of your word, that they would give honor and glory to your name and, and unify and grow us as a, as a church um, built upon uh, your word and your son's name we pray. Amen. So it's been a few years since we have preached uh, from the pulpit, specifically on our mission. Everything we preach and teach on in the church is obviously connected to, to our mission, but to, to, to speak on our mission alone. Four years ago, we, uh, we did a short series out of the book of Acts and um, on the, some of the big ideas that the scriptures have for us in regard to, to mission. We saw that, that the Spirit is empowering this, this movement globally for the expansion of the gospel and for the establishing of churches uh, throughout the nation. So that's, and we looked at some of the big ideas there. Uh, six years ago, 2011, we, we, we preached on Titus. We preached on Titus. And 2011 was a, a very significant year for us. We appointed elders um, at the end of that series, uh, we became self-supporting and self-governing. We could pay our own bills without any external funding sources. And um, we had our elders, and we no, were no longer under an external board. Uh, we also founded Twin Cities Ministries in 2011. Uh, just a, a vision of a couple guys with no organizational capacity or money or really any idea that they were what we, what we were doing. But... That's, uh, that started in 2011. And we're at a nodal time right now as a church, and we just felt that it was a, a, a good time, timely occasion for going through the book of Titus again, uh, as it is, it is a book written to um, a man named Titus who was establishing all these churches that were founded upon the gospel preaching of Paul and Titus on the island of Crete. And so it's, it's very condensed, three chapters long, and basically covers three or four areas that churches need to be um, very clear on in terms of what their foundations are. Um, and so I, we just felt that we were at a time in the church where it would be great to once again uh, clarify um, what our core mission and vision is as a church, and then to look in also uh, which we didn't do in 2011, to this idea of work. Work is a very central idea to the book of Titus. And work, uh, not from the standpoint of job, okay? Work from the standpoint of, like in Colossians, where Paul says, uh, whatever your hands find themselves doing, do in service to the Lord. And so it's, it, it includes our jobs, if you have a 
quote, paid job. Uh, but it's all of the work and activity that you engage in uh, to fulfill the, the purposes of God that, uh, at this time. And so it's stuff that you do um, that you don't get paid for. It's stuff that you do that you do get paid for. It's the stuff that you do to keep yourself and your family alive and to serve others. And everything that we do, the scriptures see as our work. So we're going to look at some broad understanding of work and all these various categories that Paul uses that, that term. But right now, you know, we've got stable leadership. Uh, we've got full and part-time staff compared to just one full-time staff in 2011 that was uh, being funded by external sources. We've got ministry teams that are engaged in very substantial ministry um, that are, that are uh, increasingly um, not distant or apart from the staff, but in, in support of and extensions of um, the staff. We've got reproducible processes and tools that are leading to the, to the, to the strength and multiplication of disciples and, and house churches. Uh, Twin Cities Ministries is, is no longer as ambiguous and cloudy as it was. We've got uh, the Discipleship Home Ministry started. We've got work in county jails. We've got a partnership with Metro Hope. Uh, we want to start the process for the campaign, campaign of a women and children's home this fall. Um, we are one site. We're more efficient in terms of all of our resources from a, from a human and, and financial standpoint. Uh, we're expanding our ministry to other churches here in the U.S. and in Portugal and now in, in Mozambique. Uh, we've more than doubled in our size and in our budget since 2011. Um, but lastly, but I think is the most important, is that I, I don't think there's any individual that has been connected to Twin Cities Church that has not been significantly impacted by the love of Jesus Christ through the gospel and the love of this family. And um, that, is, that is the strength. God says that the, that the local church is the uh, pillar and support of the truth. We hold it up, we live it, and in that we are able to extend it to others. And uh, I really sense that is what God is doing. So this time, 2017, as I mentioned, uh, we want to look at our core foundational ideas from the scriptures about what makes us us. And uh, we want to look at this issue of, of work and how our work contributes to the building of the kingdom of God. One of the things that, that we're going to be addressing throughout the time is this um, Thinking that has really been uh, expanded throughout the church's history. I think Roman Catholicism really kind of uh, helped create this, this distancing or this divide between uh, work that is sacred and work that is secular. Um, it's the idea that, that um, the sacred work or the work of God is, is work that you're going to do if you're a pastor or a missionary or some specific act of service to a formal structure of, of the church or of mission. Um, and then that's sacred work and secular work is anything that's not. So um, our work as, as engineers, as tradespeople, as doctors, as nurses, as uh, service workers, whatever it is that we might do, quote, as a job or not a job, homemaking, uh, volunteering, uh, these kinds of work were not sacred. 
they were not of God, they weren't contributing to the things of God, and they were kind of looked down upon as, as second level. And so that led, that's led to a whole host of issues over the years, and really the roots of it aren't in Roman Catholicism, they're in Greek philosophy thousands of years before, uh, hundreds of years, and in the millennia before Christ, where there was just this perspective that the things of the flesh are somewhat profane and corrupt, and things of the spirit uh, are not. And so therefore, our, our ambition as people should be to pursue the, what, quote, spiritual things, to kind of get out of our bodies and to push off the pursuits and desires of our bodies and just seek to have this, this life connected to the spirit and our minds and to kind of look down upon anything that we would engage in from a, quote, fleshly perspective. In the, in, like in, for example, in the 1100s, uh, the Catholic Church had this notion that, um, and this was even a divide within the, quote, um, clergy. Uh, they, had a, they had priests for different things. And um, if you really wanted to be a, a, a godly uh, clergy person, clergyman in the, in the Roman Catholic Church, you would pursue like simply like being a monk or a scholar where you could devote yourselves uh, to prayer and to study, um, but not people. <laughs> If you were a parish priest that had to actually kind of engage in the, uh, the hard work of ministering and living among people, that was kind of looked down upon as kind of a dirty work and not nearly as spiritual as being separated and, so and being in solitude and devoting yourselves to, to prayer and contemplation. And so even, even within clergy, it has been divided historically. And so we want no part of this. It is unbiblical, it is satanic, it promotes division amongst the people of God, it elevates some over others, and again, we want no part of this. It's not biblical, and we're going to see here in the book of Titus that, um, that there is work for people called the vocational ministry, so to speak, um, but the, the work that they've been given to do is to increase and expand the meaning and the significance of the work that we all do in all aspects of our lives. And we're going to see this idea of work spread. All of the people that Paul is instructing to, he's addressing the concept of work. And they're not doing his work. He's doing his work. But to, to fulfill the purposes of Jesus Christ and to build the kingdom of God, everybody has to see that their work, whatever it is that they find themselves doing, are vitally connected to um, the gospel, the expanding of the gospel and the building of the kingdom of God here on earth, which was inaugurated. Okay, when Jesus was on earth, he said, the kingdom is here. The kingdom of God was inaugurated upon his coming, upon his death, and upon his resurrection. And he has called us into service to build the kingdom of God. And that is everybody. That is everybody. And Paul sees it as a burden in his, in his ministry, in his letter to Titus, to see that, that we all understand how our work contributes to this mission of God. Albert Walters says that the uh, task of God's people... You want to hit the, who's on the slides there? There we go. The task of God's people is to make known the good news of God's renewed reign over the entirety of creation. Christ's kingly authority extends over the whole world. 
God's mission is equally comprehensive to embody the good news that Jesus Christ again rules over marriage and family, business and politics, art and athletics, leisure and scholarship, sex and technology. There isn't anything that the kingdom of God doesn't want to expand into. God created it all. Yes, it is corrupted by sin. Every aspect of it, even ourselves. But the kingdom of God is expanding and growing into every sphere. And we're all called to those spheres. There's two ways that the book of Titus is going to do this. First of all, we're going to, we're going to get some insight into how Paul and Titus thought about their own work. And then there's a lot of instruction in the text about work. And so as Ryan read, uh, there are four points that Paul really brings up in this introduction of himself. It's a very unique introduction, uh, one through five here, excuse me, one through four. And there's four things that Paul understands about himself and his work that I really want to address. The first one is his sense of identity and calling. He calls himself a, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so prior to Christ, Paul's identity and sense of calling was in his work, in what he was doing. And after Christ, his sense of identity and calling was no longer restricted to his work. Um, it, was, it was restricted to the person of God and to the person of Jesus Christ. He considered himself bond to, enslaved to God. God had bought him through the death of Jesus Christ, the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. God had bought him. And so he was not his own anymore. He was brought, bought with a price, as he's mentioned in other places. And in God's purchasing of him, God called him to, to be an apostle, a messenger of Jesus Christ, called to spread his word. Now, he didn't have a fundamental change in the type of work he was doing. He was still a religious leader, and he was still a scholar and a teacher and a preacher, just like he was when he was in Judaism prior to coming to know Christ. So he didn't have a fundamental change in his work, but he had a fundamental change in, in his identity. It was not wrapped up in his work anymore. It was given to him by God. It wasn't something that he was earning. It was given to him by God. And so as, as Christians... <laughs> Our, our identity and calling changed when we came to believe in Jesus Christ. Who we are is not defined by what we do. It's not defined by the job that we think is going to be our savior in terms of fulfill us in the activity and in the income that it earns. Our identity uh, is not in um, the works, the good works that we can do. Um, had a, got a ride home yesterday on uh, Uber from the airport, long story, but uh, it was a, a Muslim gentleman that picked me up uh, named Ibrahim, and uh, we just got into a great conversation almost immediately, and uh, we were talking about um, what it means for a Muslim to go to heaven, and um, he just said, it's by my works. And if I've got bad works, they've got to be outweighed by their good works. And I said, so, so you never know? 
He said, no, we never know. I can't say that I will go into eternal life. I can't say that, he said. And then he was explaining some of the personal stuff that's going on in his life. And he's, he's, he's got two women in his life and one has a child. He was kind of going into his religion about marriage and childbearing. And I said, dude, your story sounds like the story of Abraham. <laughs> and we talked about having one wife, <laughs> having children with that one wife. And, uh, you know, with all the traffic, it was an extended drive home. So we had a lot to talk about. But his works, his works is what defined him. And I sh shared the gospel with him over the time, told him to read the story of, the, of Abraham. And he was really interested in that. But I couldn't just help, but I felt sorry for the guy because here's a man that won't, doesn't know who he is, doesn't know where he will be, doesn't know if he's going to spend eternity in hell or be with God. And when Christ calls us and God calls us and buys us with the blood of Christ, we know who we are. We are his children. We are ch children of God. We know who we are. And he gives us a calling. Our identity is not in our work or in our works. Our destiny is not in our work or in our works. We may be in the same sphere of activity that we were in before coming to know Christ, but once we've come to know Christ, everything has changed. Amen. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to know that God is calling you to him. The scriptures teach that God wants everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And if you do that, then you know, if you come to know Jesus Christ, if you come to believe that, that God is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, including you, and that Christ has paid for your sins and you don't have to be identified by, by your work or by your works, either good or bad, then you'll find that he has called you into a full life where your work and your works are part of an integrated whole that contribute to the building of an eternal kingdom that you can know you'll be in Amen. and you're, yeah. you're a part of building. Second thing that Paul looks at is purpose. See, prior to Christ, and he's explained this in other texts, can't hit all of the ones, but prior to Christ, Paul was, Paul's work was justifying himself. His, his reason for existence was justifying himself for, for developing and proving his own righteousness. And you can see Philippians chapter 3 just establishes this very well. He was pursuing status within the, within the framework of what it meant to be a, a Jew at his time. And he spells out in great detail how he had come to a place of meeting all of the status goals for Judaism. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He, he, was, he says, I, I excelled beyond everyone my own age, he says. And his zealousness. How hard am I working to be a, a, an exemplary Jew? That was his purpose. To, 
to please God through his works and to develop his own righteousness. But in being justified, in taking on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and letting Jesus Christ justify him, he's freed. He's freed from a life of self-service and proving himself to be somebody. He's freed from that because God has given him Jesus' identity. And now he can serve others because he doesn't have to concern himself anymore with working for himself. He says, I work for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So God's elect is everyone who knows Jesus Christ at this point and those who are going to come and know Jesus Christ in response to the gospel. And so he says, I, I live for the strengthening and development and inception of faith in the people of God. That's what I live my life for, he says. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords to godliness. That's his purpose. Others. And he says throughout his letters, I am pouring myself out as a sacrifice because I know it is what's best for you. But he also acknowledges, as Christ did, that a life poured out in service to others is the life of ultimate joy. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says that Christ looked upon the cross and he scorned its shame and he looked forward to the joy that was set before him. And it was for joy that Christ gave his life, his joy, his love for us and his joy. And so when we, when we see that our life is given for the service of others, we can give up on pursuing joy and fulfillment ourselves because Christ has already secured all of those things. And then in service to others, God gives us more joy than we could have ever imagined. If we're a Christian, we've been called to serve others. That is our calling. Yep, our work is a means of personal joy. Yep, our work is the means through which we provide for ourselves and for our families. Yes, the scriptures teach that we are to find joy and a sense of, of fulfillment in the work that we do. It's a huge part of the message of Ecclesiastes. But we've been given this work primarily for the reason of serving others. Chapter four out of Every Good Endeavor, I've got a couple quotes from Tim Keller. Um, I know many of you have read this book. When I read chapter four of this book, uh, I felt that, that uh, I had been taught something that had never been uh, expressed or taught to me in that way before. It was just a profound, like a half an hour to read a chapter, and I just came away like, that was incredible. He says, our daily work can be a calling only if it is re reconceived as God's assignment to serve others. You know, a, a calling or a life purpose can't be something that you establish yourself because it, then it's not a calling. Then it's more of a, a, an initiative that you take. All right? But initiative that you take is different than somebody that's called you. If somebody's called you, you know that there's a need and that you're not just thinking there might be a need that you want to fulfill, all right? If somebody calls you, it means, hey, there's a need. If somebody calls you, it means that they think that you can do it. There's people that you can serve. That's what a calling is. If it's something that we initiate, we don't know if we're just 
trying to establish something to say that we've done something. That's the beautiful thing about a calling. That's why we, haven't, we don't respond to any like, sort of requests for help. Um, excuse me. We don't initiate work into things. We, we, we see and observe, and then like this, this situation in Mozambique, we were asked. Because there was somebody perceived that there's some things that God has taught us that we can share with others. And then it just opens up because if God's leading it, then you're not trying to, to be somebody that you're not. You're, 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 you're being something that God has called you to. If the purpose of work is to serve and exalt something beyond ourselves, then we actually have a better reason to deploy our talent, ambition, and entrepreneurial vigor. And we are more likely to be successful in the long run, even by the world's definition. You know what I've found? Things that I do for my own desire or pursuits or happiness, I find that I stop them much more quickly because I'm pretty easily satisfied. But if, if it's something I'm doing for others, then I work until the need is met. Like, so we've been working on these, these booklets for our house churches for you know, eight years, nine years now. And they've come to a good spot. But I saw another place of need. We need to make a teacher's guide that helps people walk through and explain the text. I, 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 honestly, I'm kind of tired of writing on those booklets. But now there's a need. I wouldn't have done it. I think we're getting by just fine. <laughs> but you know what? There's a, a sphere and context for those booklets that needs some more writing. And so they're going to get better. They're going to become more effective, even for what we do. If we make a little leader's guide on how to go through the sessions, I think you just need one booklet for, for all of them. When we're called to serve God and other people, it will make us better and more effective and, and help us love people. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose for what you're doing? What is the purpose for what you're doing? And, and if you haven't found an answer for that, I would encourage you, um, look into what God has called you to. He's entrusted you with some skills and, and gifts and, and inclinations and desires. He wants to use those things to fulfill you and to bring joy to you, but he wants to use you so that you can be of great service to others, whatever it might be. Look into Christ and what he's called and gifted you to do. He didn't just save you to save you from your sins. That's part of what he's done, absolutely. But part of our sin is the selfishness that we, that we pursue our work. And he wants to save us from that selfishness. He wants to save us for a purpose. The third thing is hope. third thing is hope. In some way, a lot of the Jews, and Paul included, prior to knowing Christ, were looking for a kingdom on earth. They wanted a king to come back, destroy the Romans, and once again rule, and to be, to be the nation of the world. And God is going to come back through Jesus Christ and establish an eternal kingdom. But Paul says now that his hope is in eternal life. He says, I, I live for the 
faith for the <laughs> for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life in the hope of eternal life and eternal life has two dynamics to it and it's easy for us to just read eternal life and think oh eternal life is something that's way down the road in the future um God's going to come back, he's going to establish his kingdom, I'm going to be in heaven, and so whenever that happens, that's great, I'm glad I'm, going to, I'm glad I'm not going to hell, however you conceive of hell, I'm glad I'm not going to be there. But what do you do in the decades prior to that? Isn't that a part of eternal life? Jesus said, the kingdom is here and now. And so when you read eternal life in the Bible, and you really pick this up in the theology of John's letters in his gospel, as well as Paul. Eternal life is not just this chronological thing. It's not just a time thing. It's an experiential thing. It also means a full and eternal life now. The, the capacity at which we can live is, has been expanded and strengthened for now. Jesus called it the abundant life. I have come that you might have life and life abundant. Not just for when you die and go to heaven. Whatever that is. It's, it's for now. He says, I have hope in eternal life. And, and he's not just meaning down the road. He's like eternal. I want these folks that I am preaching and teaching. I, Titus, I want the churches that you are traveling and preaching and speaking and teaching in. I want them to experience the full abundant life now. That is my hope. His hope is no longer in in the rule of Israel over other nations, of which he would be a preeminent individual in because of his status within the Jewish uh, nation. Paul sees that, that now his, his hope has really been transferred to eternal life and the gospel which founds it. There is, the, one, I tell you, one of the things that really... God was just impressing upon me very heavily during my time in, in Mozambique was in, in spite of, of my discomforts being there and in spite of, of the conditions of the churches, uh, reminded me of the intro to Luther's small catechism, if you're familiar with that, um, where he was called to examine the churches, was really discouraged with what he saw. God gave me a tremendous hope in the life and power of, of the gospel. And here these folks, they, they love Jesus, they love each other, they love his word, they love his gospel. And, and regardless of where things are at, the, the, I've seen gospel give birth to overcome sin and to bring life and to bring joy and fulfillment. And it just, there was just like, hey, you know what, the gospel is gonna bring eternal life here. And that is something that I really am excited about giving my life to. And that's what Paul's saying. We have hope in the gospel making a difference and bringing eternal life to everything that it touches. Wherever you work, your family, your neighborhood, the schools that you are in and where your kids are at, wherever it is that you are at, God is wanting to burst eternal life into that place. And that is something that we can put our hope in because Jesus is alive and the kingdom is expanding. If you don't know Jesus Christ, where's your hope? Is it in your work? 
Hope is something that you know, you know something good. It's an assurance of something good definitely happening. It's not a dream. It's not a wish. It is a, it's the assurance of a definite future good. 100% promised. That's what, that's what a hope is. We put our, we put our hopes, it's an, it's a, it's an expression of our affections. We, we put our hopes into a lot of things that are just dreams. But what Jesus is wanting, he's wanting to give you a hope that isn't in a dream, it's in a for sure thing. And your work cannot be an object of your hope because it's, it's unsure. You're not the only one in control of it. And if you were, it would fail because you fail. But our work is controlled and by a lot of people and a lot of things. Our work cannot be our hope. Jesus Christ in eternal life is. And finally, entrusted. He considered who, who he had been entrusted with some things to fulfill this purpose. Prior to Christ, Paul was blinded by his pursuit of self-righteousness. After Christ, he was entrusted with a few things. And they weren't of his own making. You know, your talents and abilities and resources... You maybe have developed them. You maybe have, have earned them. But it's from what God has given you and what your parents gave you. There's nothing that you can claim to be the product of your own self. It's stuff that you have been entrusted with. And for Paul, he was, he was entrusted with the ability to safeguard and protect the gospel to use his gifts of, of preaching and teaching and prophecy and apostleship to, to preach and protect and to proclaim the gospel and to strengthen churches. And he was even entrusted with people. Not just the, the people in the churches that, that he started, not just the leaders, but, but he said, I have, I have fulfilled my responsibility to the people of the Mediterranean area. And now I'm going to Spain. He even saw the world uh, in terms of those that didn't know Christ as being under his responsibility to some degree. And, and God has entrusted us as well. He, he's given you some gifts and some spheres and some, and some, some disciplines that he's entrusted you with. He's given you a profession that he's entrusted you with. What, what contribution can you make to your discipline or, or to your profession He's put you there. What contribution can you make where you're at? Because God has entrusted you with skills and gifts and capacities and that sphere to operate in. He's given you talents and temperaments to do your work, all of your work. People within your sphere that you're responsible for. Mothers, there is no greater sphere of responsibility then those kids that God has given you, parents, dads, that is a great sphere where all of your gifts and abilities and resources and especially the ones you don't have because God has got to come in and help you. And Christ, through his Holy Spirit, gives them to us the ability to, to deposit our, our faith and our life, uh, our genes uh, into our children. What a tremendous sphere of work. These things in God's empowerment will, will grow and succeed beyond our expectations because 
the kingdom of God is expanding and growing. And he will plant seeds in our work that we're not even comprehending that will bring fruit in our generation and in generations to come. And that our joy and sense of fulfillment will grow because we've seen God do something with the, the talents and spheres that he's given to us. Paul, Paul weighed his, what God had entrusted with him with, with great responsibility. And we all should. Paul's sphere was a part of the kingdom of God. Your sphere is a part of the kingdom of God. As Paul teaches, as Peter teaches, as the New Testament Jesus teaches as we see throughout the entire Bible. Everyone has a role to play in the kingdom of God and every member plays an critical part to the entire body. And if you, know, if you don't know Christ, you don't fully know what God has called and entrusted you with. Your potential will never be realized. Your experience of fullness will never be realized. And the gifts and abilities you have will not ever come to what they could really do because they do not have the power of God behind them. Twin Cities Church, if we're going to serve Christ faithfully and manifest what the gospel says to see the reconciliation of all things in heaven and on earth, then we need to, we need to throw off our culture's understanding and, and givenness to individualism and to re-image our understanding of our work as something that we live together as the family of God in the world that we, are, that we see as our place to see the kingdom of God reign in, in, in this world, in the lives of those that don't know him. To conclude, Robert Bella, the distinguished sociologist who died a few years ago from Berkeley, says this in his book, The Habits of the Heart non-believer. He says, we are moving to an ever greater validation of the sacredness of the individual person. He's commenting on our culture. We're, we're, we are increasingly becoming more and more and more individualistic and seeing that as the highest goal. But our capacity to imagine a social fabric that would hold individuals together is vanishing. The sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. To make a real difference, there would have to be a reappropriation of the idea of vocation or calling, a return in a new way to the idea of work as a contribution to the good of all and not merely as a means to one's own advancement. I don't know if he knew Jesus or not, but there are some phrases there that sound like they're right out of the New Testament. Out of Titus, out of Galatians, out of a number of books. We have been called to a mission church and we can only fulfill it as a family. And it is to the world that God has called us. Let me pray. Lord Jesus Christ, um, Thank you for calling us into your name and into your family and into your mission. And uh, indeed, uh, we can testify to the fullness of joy that you give us when we stop living for ourselves and start living for you and the lives of others. So God, we pray that you would uh, use this series, uh, grow us in a lot of ways. 
um, here as a church in our, in our understanding. God, down to each individual, please help us to see how everything that we do uh, is, is kingdom building and that we could appropriate the faith needed to see that kingdom grow. In your son's name, amen.